This week on Required Reading, we cover Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We're only going to talk about the first one, uh, but I would recommend all of them. All of us read this around high school age, as you'll hear on the podcast and how we talk about it. Uh, but it's a blast. Uh, we enjoyed recording this episode, and to be fair, it's incredibly funny. You should read it yourself. Uh, I think you'll get more out of the discussion, because as Mike Carroll and I discuss on the actual episode, sometimes it's hard to talk about a comedy. Uh, it's like retelling the same joke over and over. Uh, so just do yourself a favor and actually uh, read the original. Or listen to the audiobook. Uh, I think Stephen Fry narrates it. Anyway, as we've been doing this season, and we will continue to do, the first um, I will tell you the next book that we're going to cover. So the first book we're going to cover on the first Friday in September is Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, uh, which is a 2005 novel by Jonathan Safran Foer. You know, a little bit more contemporary, a little bit more modern, a little bit more maudlin, uh, though occasionally funny as well. Kind of a postmodern book. Uh, anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for reviewing. Please pass this around. And of course please share. Uh, we're on uh, Twitter at required underscore pod. Uh, and of course, follow michael.c.carol on Instagram as a way to keep in touch with what we are doing. Thank you and have a great day. Welcome to Required Reading. This week we're talking about Wikipedia, um, The Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy uh, by Douglas Adams. Uh, the actual novelized version based on a series of radio plays he did in the 70s for uh, the BBC Radio. Uh, not that terrible movie that came out in 2005, <laughs> which I think sucked all the humor out of everything, uh, which we, we'll probably talk about a little bit. But uh, we're doing a little comedy a little comedy sci-fi this week. Um, I'm Nick Hoffman, your host with the most. And on panel we have... Mike Burns, glad to be here. And Mike Carroll. Uh, now, uh, I picked this up uh, for the first time in probably a decade. Last year, year before last. And uh, Mr. Carroll here nearly jumped out of his chair uh, when I said, <laughs> I've read The Hitchhiker's Guide and I read the second one. And I'm like, and he goes, have you gotten to the third one yet? And I'm like, not yet, buddy. Not yet. Uh, so when we were talking about... Uh, over vigorous research and yes. lunch, uh, we decided, why not? Let's just talk about it. I read it for school for the first time. Um, I don't know if either of you... Did you read it? When did you read it for school? Um, so the way uh, Maris did um, summer reading when I was there was there were two books you had to do that right. were required, and then a list of optional ones. And this was one of the optional ones, I believe, my freshman year. So ninth grade, so I, I which is kind of a broad grade. approach versus Amlet 10, yeah, yeah, Britlet yeah. Jr. Yeah. Okay. Um, that makes sense. And it's great. I, 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 that. I found it very funny. I will say, I, I, I know you, there are nerds out there who have ruined this for you because they just come up and start saying 42. Like people start quoting Monty Python and saying me over and over again. <laughs> but this book is truly a, a gem. Oh, it's spectacular. It really is. <laughs> um, Mike, when did you first read it? Yeah, so it was uh, passed me by my brother, actually. Uh, so I think in a slightly similar way to what Nick is talking about with it being not necessarily taught within the confines of the classroom. Um, I think my brother read it as like an extra credit uh, novel for one of his classes his freshman or sophomore year and very similarly um, it did, so it wasn't it wasn't taught passages weren't weren't like discussed in class or anything like that but it was read within the uh, within the confines of our high school I think I, I do want to say for like an extra credit assignment to just read this book and, and do a quick report on it and earn yourself a couple of extra points um, but he read it and he would not stop talking about how hilarious he thought that it was and so he passed it along to me and I have never laughed as hard and I think that this still stands true today uh, I don't think I've ever laughed as hard reading something as I did the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series I started with the original Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and went through the five book series in the snap of a finger um, and laughed so much as I was going through them. I think more so than I've laughed at any other uh, at any other text that I've ever read, um, and and I think that that still remains true even to this day. Yeah. 
When did you come across this? I, I, can't, I don't remember the context, but I clearly remember on a family trip, spring break of my freshman year, so this must have been in high school, 85, I guess, reading it in the car, like traveling the vast distances of the West, and it's beautiful in some way, but laughing out loud. And my parents yeah. are like, what are you laughing at? What are you reading? Um, and like you, once I read the first book, so, and I burned through them all. But um, I'm, I'm looking at the publishing dates. Like the later in the series, I think I was like up to date, like waiting for the next one to come oh, okay. out. Oh, there um, you go. But um, just awesome. Yeah, just it's so... And we'll get there, I'm sure, but just such a fun story, so inventive, uh, so iconic in its own way. Um, and I think it's amazing. Me, yeah, I think for me it was so unlike anything oh, I had totally, ever right. read before. I mean, we were we were talking beforehand about how it almost feels like you're watching a Monty Python movie as you're reading through it, and just the jokes and the references and the 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 humor that is just the pardon the terrible pun, but out of this world. It's just it's it's. <laughs> outrageous and it's ridiculous and it's so funny i can't i cannot impress how how funny i i really truly think that douglas adams is well and i mean like it's 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 also because it's written like comedy bits and he tied together a show into an audio yeah, it's fine but like there are little parts that i just remember like i remember him describing a the drink a pangalactic gargle blaster absolutely as having your brain smashed out by a slice of lemon strapped to a gold brick and that's such a beautiful description and then it turns out it was invented by the president of the universe yeah. and that's it's, it's perfect yeah. it's so good and i think that part of the the structure if if you can call it that of of the story relies on some of those little tidbits here and there so the the, there's a reference. I think it's very early on when Arthur Dent is is before the planet has been destroyed, and he's in the bar drinking down as quickly as he can three pints of beer so that uh, so that the the space travel will not be quite as painful for him. Um, and they they flash to I think the pangalactic Garwa Blaster is the first of the the like the references that the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the actual guide to the galaxy, uh, that's kind of in the in the background of this story. Um, it's one of the first references that it makes, and then they reference back to it yes. the first time that the improbability machine is uh, <laughs> is is used, and then suddenly one of the characters is just kind of like sitting with like sitting lounging in a chair and drinking none other than a pink lactic gargle blaster, which, right. yeah. which by the way, if there is not a bar out oh, there somewhere that is selling pangalactic gargle blasters for I'm sure like $15 at a pop, then something is wrong. I want to go someday into a bar somewhere and be able to order myself a big collective gargle We're doing this wrong. We should be drinking. Yes, we should be <laughs> I'll get the absinthe down. We'll be yeah, fine. Yes. Um, but it also to me, it seems like it's making fun of the Lord of the Rings because there's this whole wide world that he's come up with because we also know how to make one yeah. with the old jank spirit and the singing, like the the, the, oh, it's the, the drunken songs. Oh, yeah. don't, oh, don't give me any more of that old jank spirit. Yeah. And then legends of drinking competitions with jank spirit. Oh, it's great. And the loser's the first one to not make something move with their mind or yeah. something like that. It's just <laughs> there, there's so many layers to the nonsense. But like it starts out with our hero, ladies and gentlemen, Arthur Dent being hungover, mm -hmm. and his first thought is yellow. And then he realized that yellow is the bulldozer in front of his house. Yes. It's, uh, it's, it's so choice. I love everything about this story. Yeah. It's great. And it's so, I mean, it seems so random and chaotic, but like the Gargoyle Blaster, there's so many callbacks, like a good tight yeah. novel or tight comedy routine. It, it, it's something's going to come back and out of nowhere. And then you go, oh, and then you're laughing out loud. And at you it, don't so. have to wait that long for the first one. You, you, you're introduced to the story where Arthur Dent is, is, uh, very upset about the fact that his house is about to be torn down in order to make way for a superhighway that's right. passing through his town. And then they go to the bar and, and, and come back and you realize that you get this loud overcom that's, that's speaking to everybody on Earth from the spaceship that has made its way to, to the Milky Way, to the planet Earth, that is there to destroy the planet Earth because they need to make way for an intergalactic super space highway. And it's just, it, it, 
plays off of what it is that you just read, like no more than 10 pages earlier. But it just, it, it does such a, an unbelievable job of calling back to it. And what do you mean you didn't know that the, that the plans for this super space <laughs> highway were, were, were going to be put into effect? You've only known about it for four years. It's only four light years away. Like, uh, that's not our fault that you didn't go to the space station to see it. It's just, it's so wonderfully wound. And it's part of what I love about it. And the plot device that comes up, which is, you know, the, the spaceship, which we'll get to, makes the highway obsolete. Yeah. So it didn't so matter no, anyway. anyway. It just right? yeah. so it's completely for no reason. Yeah. yeah, that nihilistic sort of <laughs> yeah. sense of humor is oh, great. It's, it's so incredible. Uh, so we've introduced Arthur Dent. He's uh, kind of a stereotypical Englishman. And again, it's it's almost like you're reading Board of the Rings or something. Like, he's such a mundane hobbit. He doesn't matter in this world. But he's brought along because his best buddy... Ford Prefect is an editor for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and he's from a planet near the star Betelgeuse, mm -hmm. uh, or Betelgeist, or however you want to pretend to say at this time. Um, and he, in what is a very funny sketch, he convinces the uh, foreman of the, the destruction to lie down in Arthur Dent's place so that the two of them can go to the pub. Yeah. Um, in response, like you said, they drink a bunch of drinks because the Vogons are coming to destroy the planet. Um, I do... I will quote where I can because this is so funny and out yeah. of context it doesn't really work. Uh, but when they get on the Vogon ship, Arthur has no idea what's going on. Ford Prefect knows they're in trouble because Vogons hate hitchhikers. Yeah. But he hands in the Hitchhiker's Guide and the Hitchhiker's Guide said, If you want to get a lift from a Vogon, forget it. They're vile and ill-tempered. If you want to get a drink from a Vogon, stick your finger down his throat. If you want to annoy a Vogon, feed his grandmother to the ravenous book blaster beast of Troll. <laughs> but don't listen to their poetry. But their yeah, oh my gosh. It's hysterical. And hearing the, it, it's something like the ode to the piece of lint that I found in my belly button that, that is like known as the worst poem that's ever been spoken by a Vogon. Except that he makes some throwaway line about someone in Ipswich or something. Yeah, that's right. Woman, the ants. Yeah. It's so good. It's, oh, yes, it's, so it's unbelievable. Um, I have no, I mean, like, like, and you have to remember, like, we'll do our best with this, but the mo the book kind of trips along different set pieces like it's a comedy show, right? Mm -hmm. um, while they're on the Vogon ship, they're hiding. Turns out there's a race of creatures that are servants that are okay with hitchhikers. So if you can make good with them, you're fine until the Vogons find you. Mm -hmm. um, and around here, we are cut to the other side of the galaxy. Yeah. And that's where we uh, were introduced to uh, Zaphod, uh, who is the who has stolen a ship that is that it, its whole functionality is that it drives on an improbability drive. So the more improbable an event is to, to transpire, um, the that that's kind of what what it is that drives the uh, the functionality of this uh, of this spaceship. It's the it's is it the heart of heart of gold. Heart of gold, heart of gold yes. is the is the name of the ship, and uh, we 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 are introduced to this character as he is uh, stealing the heart of gold. We uh, should say he's the president of the galaxy. Yes, he is, yes. he is also the president of the galaxy. Yes, uh, and, and scary at this, echoes of current politics. Yeah. As well. Yes, <laughs> and in fact, best we can tell, he only became president so he can steal the heart of gold. Ship. Yes. Um, and we should describe him. He's kind of an, a, a big dude who has two heads mm -hmm. and a third arm, but not because he's an alien, because he had them installed. Yeah. <laughs> which, 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 ends up, which ends up being important later on because the, the communication between these heads and the, the voices that they take on are A, hysterical, but B, the, there's communication that is not said because we get the impression that Zaphod has had his aspects of his memory removed uh, by the mysterious ZB. Uh, so the, those were the initials that were placed into his brain uh, when he had some of his memory removed. Um, and so we get the impression that it was indeed himself that had, uh, that had this done in order to uh, steal the heart of gold and uh, eventually we discover, uh, find a planet that is the most improbable of planets. Um, but but before we do that, we 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 have to get uh, Arthur and Ford off of the uh, off of the Vogon ship. So we, we don't need to get into that just yet. Yeah, right. Um, 
So, like, I, and again, like, th this thing happens in such quick order. I read it, like, two weeks ago, and I'm going to get things confused. Um, but they are on the Vogon ship. They are captured because, mm -hmm. well, they're on the Vogon ship. Mm -hmm. And they get the poetry read to him, um, which Arthur doesn't think is actually too bad. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Ford is screaming out in yeah. pain. And he's like, I actually quite liked it. I wasn't too bad at all. And Ford thinks this is a brilliant strategy, um, other than Arthur's just kind of dumb. Which is mm. fine. It's good. It's it's a it's a perfectly fine functional joke. Uh, but they decide eventually that they have to launch them into space. Yeah. Um, execute them essentially. To, to yeah. execute them, you know, good old fashioned space shooting into space. Like I mm. don't know. It's, it's it's good. It's a good sci-fi death. Um, and I will mention this because we had this discussion off the air. This is kind of representative of all that's going on in culture. This is right after Monty Python has ended. This is, you know, the beginning of SNL. This came out in 79 in, in England, 1980 in the States. It had already been a radio show. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is also, I mean, 77 is the first Star Wars. 80 is the second Star Wars movie. Uh, Star Trek had been off the air, but they were talking about coming back with a Star Trek movie, which is in 79. Like, so this is, this is making just fun of all of it. Uh, and mm -hmm. you really can smell this. This is when Ralph Bakshi put out the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm -hmm. And so there's that too. And he's just having this blast, kind of pulling together what he wants uh, I don't know about you, but I read Zaphod as an American, like, because mm -hmm. he's just kind of crass, he's just shooting from the hip, you know, uh, Trillian, who we haven't gotten to yet, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you have these, like, you know, she's not posh, but she's much more polished, kind of embarrassed to be around these people, yeah. even though she's one of the last two humans left in the universe, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I, the, the setup is so good, but what do we get? We get that space drama. Mm -hmm. The Vogons shoot them out into the vacuum of space, and one of the last lines before the end of the chapter is Fort Prefect saying, we probably have about 30 seconds if you get a good deep breath before you asphyxiate mm -hmm. in space. And Arthur says, what? Right as he gets sucked uh -huh. out into space. And then, and then you, so the, our, our heroes are kind of thrust into the void of space, and it's then 29 seconds, so doing the math, you've got you've one second to spare when... So improbably, the uh, the heart of gold ends up picking up these hitchhikers. Uh, the ends up picking up Ford and Arthur um, at the at the very last second, um, and then we get the merging of Zaphod and Trillian, um, who Arthur had met earlier at a party, um, <laughs> as Oz would have it. Uh, and then wait, wait, Ford... wait, no, 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 we've got to explain this scene because. Zaphod is the president of the galaxy. Like he's mm -hmm. he's literally the most important person in the galaxy. Though we find out as a president, he really has no power. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. But he's like a semi cousin. They keep calling it to Ford Prefect. So Ford walks in thinking he's going to have to introduce this rare Earth man to everything. But Arthur Dent goes, "I know him," and. Ford is so deflated that yeah. Arthur already knows him, and he goes, he was at this party in the West End, and he stole the girl I was hitting yeah. on, and the girl's the only other human in the universe, <laughs> and it's Trillian at the control panel. It's just, I mean, you you can't make it up. It, it, it's, it's, it's just so improbable. Yeah. And the thing That's the, the beauty of the improbability <laughs> yeah. drive, right? It's I a guess great, so. I guess as so. an author, it's a great plot yeah. device, right? You can I do mean, anything with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's the perfect ex machina. It's great. Yeah. But what's even better is... When things become improbable, the improbability drive tells you how improbable it yes. is. Mm -hmm. And then there's also like narration on top of narration on top of narration because, but that's not even the most improbable thing to happen. Yeah. <laughs> because she goes, I know you. And then it goes back up again. Yeah. It is, it is so unbelievably funny. It's and great. I, it's hard to talk about comedy without just making the same jokes, but you have to read this. Yeah, it, it really, it really is. It's also around the same time that you're introduced to Martin, who <laughs> is the, uh, who is a robot who, um, the on the Heart of Gold, the the creators of the Heart of Gold wanted for all of the robots to have their own distinct and unique personalities, uh, and Martin's is a manically depressed um, <laughs> robot, uh, which which ends up making for a, a countless number of jokes throughout the throughout the story, but. He has this kind of ongoing feud with the doors that are way too excited to be opening for the characters, and and his pessimism uh, just 
juxtaposed against the uh, the the thrill of these doors who are so happy to be opening for the different characters. It's it's a priceless moment, and that's the first moment that you really are introduced to uh, to Martin. Uh, and it's gosh, it's just I think it's, it's great. Before people write in, I think it's Marvin. Oh, is it Marvin? I think, I Martin, think it's sorry. Marvin. Yeah. Uh, but I also want to emphasize the fact is that... Is that a callback to, like, Marvin the Martian and I, the I, WB I, and oh, all I wonder, that? yeah. <laughs> Never thought of that before. <laughs> but, I mean... It's got to be. It has to. Absolutely, it yeah, has yeah. to be. But it's also, like, he's so down about everything. Like, I, I mean, he, he's like, oh, you finally noticed me, right? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. the idea that a cybernetics organization... Because... We're, the, our point of view is Arthur Dent. We've never been to space before. This is incredible. But everyone else is so bored with it, other than the fact that Zaphod's on the run. And so Martin or Marvin just brings it to us. They're mm -hmm. like, oh, this is just so boring. Oh, it's the end of the hallway, and we're on to one, another one of those doors who's going to be so smug about himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like, it's great. There's space travel. Is no one else excited about the space yeah. travel? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the only thing Ford can complain about is that he's been stuck there for 14 years mm -hmm. for a sentence. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Earth's original description was harmless, and he wrote mostly. a new paragraph that got edited down to mostly harmless, yep. which is... Fantastic. Uh, it's just so it's just so wonderful in so many different ways, but to to kind of trudge along through the the what is kind of the, the plot of the story the uh, the Zaphod does not know why it is that he's looking for the most improbable planet again because he he himself has had his memory uh, his memory washed um, but he is looking for the most improbable planet which is uh, Magrathia. Uh, and that is a supposedly the most wealthy planet in the universe because of the fact that they create other planets. Um, and so when when the improbability drive is put into gear, uh, they they find that they are right on the cusp of uh, discovering Magrathia, which is the which is that planet creating planet. Um, and it's at that time that uh, that Zaphod is is thrilled because he doesn't know why, uh, but this planet that he has been searching for, uh, indeed the whole reason why he ended up stealing the heart of gold to begin with, um, is is right there just beyond the uh, just beyond the edge of the of the galactic screen of the heart of gold. I mean, and all of this is more absurd and more absurd, and I mean you can quote whatever you want to try to get to why this is funny. Explaining comedy is already hard. But they do like the Steve Martin thing where you give them the most absurd thing at the top mm -hmm. and then they'll do follow you along for everything. Right. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what they do here. So of course we're going to Atlantis. Like, yeah. of course we're going... This is also ripped off in a Star Trek movie, which is terrible. Um, Star Trek V, where they run into God and a planet in the middle of the universe, but that's what this is. It's yeah. the planet that creates planets. It's kind of God... Of course God is capitalist in this world. Mm -hmm. He's making planets because we're paying him to make planets. I also want to say something that's kind of confusing and makes it hard to talk about. That's why we're kind of picking a plot to follow at once. It's also interspersed with the ultimate question. Mm -hmm. The question of life, the universe, and everything. Which were introduced very early on. Mm -hmm. But what they try to do is build a computer so great it can answer the question of the life, the universe, and everything Period. End of question. That's it. Yeah. Life, universe, and everything. Um, and all of that's going to collide in Magrathia. Yeah. Because uh, I, I have no sense of how long this book kind of goes because it flies by when you read it. But, like, Magrathia takes up, like, half of it. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they, spend, they spend a great deal of time on, on Magrathia. Before they get there, though, I'd, I, I would be hard-pressed to try and choose my favorite passage, but I think my favorite passage in the novel... And one of my favorite passages in the five book series is when they're approaching Magrathia and they have the intercom that's coming in through the ship that's been recorded many, many centuries ago. And it's talking about how the you're now approaching Magrathia, please turn back around, we are closed to business, we are not creating any more planets. And they end up, the, this planet with this, with this recording that they have, ends up sending missiles at the Heart of Gold. Uh, at which point, I, I believe it's Arthur Dent that ends up hitting the, right. the uh, I don't know if it's drive. the improbability yeah. driver or what the button is, but it ends up transforming the missiles into a, a whale. petunia plant, 
and a sperm whale. And the way that Douglas Adams describes the whale and the petunia plant plummeting down towards the earth, I'm not even going to read through the passage because it, it would end up it would end up butchering the passage, but I think that I laughed harder reading through that passage the first time than I've ever laughed reading through reading through any other passage in any other book. Yeah. And it's it's just it's unbelievable watching this whale come into consciousness just in the, the moments before it ends up plummeting down towards its death on this planet. Uh, and then the, it's it's so clever, but the petunia plant, as it's as it's also making its way down towards the earth, the only thought that it had in its head was, oh no, not again. And it, it, it says that if we could only understand why it is that the petunia plant had that thought, we would understand substantially more about the universe. And I just love the way that it comes together in that line, and it's it's perfect. It's it's beautiful and it's perfect. I don't I remember the series that enough, but does that pay off again? Does he come back to the petunias sure at some point? Not, I, I, I do think that it does to, later right? on later on in the uh, in later on in the series. Uh, but there's it was the birth of of some uh, of some bumper stickers that I've seen where where you have both the sperm whale and also the petunia plant. And there's the little <laughs> there's the little comic kind of like word bubble next to the petunia plant that says uh, that says oh no not again. And then next to the sperm whale it says ground that's right. <laughs> because that's one of the thoughts that the sperm whale is having as it's coming into existence moments before its death. I mean, and, and like, we can try to give the sense of humor because it's there. Like, when the Vogon ships first show up, the line is the ships hung in the sky much in the same way bricks don't. Yes. Right? Like, <laughs> and it's so simple, but it's so great. Um, you know, said, are there at times like this when I'm trapped on a Vogon ship air airlock with a man from Beetlejuice and about to die of asphyxiation in deep space that I really wish I'd listened to what my mother told me when I was young? Why? What did she tell you? I don't know. I didn't listen. Like, it's. <laughs> <clears throat> it's witty and it's clever it's so and it's good. great. Yeah. Yeah, and there's all those little discursive things, whether it's the computer voice from five million years ago yeah. warning them in sort of bureaucracies speak or where they're trying, they're, they're being marched to that airlock and they're trying to convince the Vogon that he has a miserable life and he should do something else, but he just enjoys yelling at people and yeah. so he decides he's going to stay with it. But all these little like, yeah, discursive little side trails that are just hilarious. Um, yeah, I mean, it's unlike even, anything. They even describe, like, when they're building up planets, they describe evolution. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place. Yep. And some said even the trees had been a bad move, that no one should have ever left the oceans. <laughs> just, it's so cynical and nihilistic, but it's also, like, making fun of that nihilism. Totally. Because nothing, like, at a certain point, if nothing exists then nothing exists, nothing matters. Um, which is kind of how the book ends with them going to the galaxy at the end of the universe, which is, yeah. I mean, it's not a so spoiler. The restaurant it's just at the end of the universe. Yeah. The restaurant at the end of the universe. There you go. Um, but it's just the idea, it's a layer in the humor that as the Earth is destroyed, we find out that humans were the third most intelligent being on the Earth. Yeah, yeah. Behind dolphins and mice, and there's a whole clever plot about yeah, the mice. So, yeah. so it, it kind of all comes back full circle to the question, the, the ultimate question that Nick was alluding to earlier, the question of the life, the universe, and everything. And so it turns out, and this is portrayed to Arthur through some like very antique uh, like video recordings of uh, a very distant planet that created a, tape, th right? th that yeah. had created this uh, deep thought which is the the this great mega computer that's able to calculate everything and it and they ask of course what the what the what the ultimate question is or they, they want the answer to the to the ultimate question of the life the universe and everything and so deep thought says that i'm not the most intellectual computer in the universe and of time and space i'm the second most because <laughs> i can only assume that there will come a computer later on that will be more intelligent than i but i will come up with the answer to the life the universe and everything but it's going to take me a great number of years it's like, like seven and a half million, million, right? ten million years <laughs> ten million years to, to come up with the answer and so these 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 com these scientists who came up with this computer are are very bummed out until deep thought reminds them that if you play your cards right that for generations you're going to be able to make money off of waiting uh, the for philosophers, the answer the philosophers, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, to the to, to the answer to the to this ultimate question <laughs> at which point they do wait the 10 million years and the ancestors of these great scientists and these great philosophers are there ready to unveil the answer to the to the ultimate question and deep thought says you're not going to be very happy about it but he ends up saying that the that the answer of course to the life universe and everything is 
42. And Whoa. and uh, the the jaws drop, and everybody knows that this is this is that pivotal moment of uh, of of everything that they had expected to hear about life, the universe, and everything. And uh, and 42 obviously is is a disappointment. Um, and so the entire creation of Earth comes in, where that second, where, where the most, uh, the most intelligent computer that's ever been created in time and space um, is now going to be created in order to come up with not the answer to the what? life, the universe, what and everything, question? but the question to the life, the universe, and everything. And that supercomputer is the planet Earth. That's and right. so the, the planet Earth is then created uh, in order to come up with the question to the life, the universe, and everything. And within all of this, <laughs> we are taught about the economics of the galaxy because Magrathea has gone dormant for a million years because the economy was in a bit of a downturn. Yes. <laughs> so there wasn't anyone wealthy enough to buy planets to their own liking. Yeah. And we're told this by a guy who designs fjords. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite fond of fjords. And he gets yeah. fired Slarty for putting fjords. Fest, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he gets unbelievable. Fired for trying to put fjords in Africa, yeah. if I recall correctly. Yeah, and, and so that, and so the, the whole I, I know Mike was was saying before that we have the that humankind is is actually the the third most intelligent species that's on the planet. The second most intelligent being dolphins, and the apparently and this is according to one of the one of the excerpts from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, where we are told that dolphins are were were one of the one of the most were the second most intelligent life forms on Earth who knew that the Vogon ship was coming and that the Earth was going to be destroyed uh, and tried many times to warn humankind of the fact that that this Vogon ship was coming and was going to destroy the Earth, uh, but humankind was not able to pick up on any of the cues from the dolphins, and so there was one last message translated from the dolphins to humankind that was, so long and thanks for all the fish. And then they departed Earth and were able to save themselves uh, prior to the, to the destruction of Earth. But it was misinterpreted as catching a fish and doing a flip right. through. Yeah. Knocking a ball through. Yeah. <laughs> In a way that only Douglas Adams can describe. That's right. Um... But then to go and, beyond that, so the most intelligent creatures in the universe are in uh, little white mice. Earth were white mice who are conducting experiments on humans, like very, you know, subtly done, you know, um, playing on the idea that we always use mice for experiments. So yeah, yeah, just in order to try and unveil whatever the, the ultimate <laughs> right. question is about life, the universe. And right. Uh, yeah. It's, it's um, you're in for a wild ride when you read this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean. That's kind of the plot in a nutshell. We, we can talk about little things throughout. Yeah. I think my favorite thing they bring up is always pack a towel. Oh, yeah. Um, uh -huh. And, I mean, I have the quote from the, the Hitchhiker's Guide yeah, absolutely. here. A towel, says, uh, says the guide, is about the most massively useful thing the interstellar hitchhiker can have. Partly, it has great practical value. It can wrap around you for warmth as you bound across the cold mountains of Jaguar Beta. You can lie down on it um, on the brilliant marble sand beaches of Centragonus Five. Inhaling heavy sea vapors, you can sleep under it in the stars, which shine so readily on the desert world of Kefren. They go on and on and on and on. You uh, sail a mini raft down this uh, river moth, wet it for use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You can ride it around your head. Um, you can draw. Your, you can use it as a distress signal, and of course, you can draw yourself off with it uh, if it still seems to be clean enough. Yeah. It also <laughs> says you should have one because. Then people are more likely to pick you up as a hitchhiker because he seems like he's put together because he brought a towel with him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They'll lend you your toothbrush because yeah. you seem like you're put together. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, the plot is pretty simple, mm -hmm. um, but the book isn't. It's a very complex story. So where, mm -hmm. where, where do we go from here? Well, I'm, I'm just curious. So for me, I hadn't read this again for 30 plus years or whatever. But it holds up pretty well. It like, absolutely does. Unlike yeah. some science fiction may or may not, because some of it is, I mean, we have AI and, and sort mm -hmm. of crazy computers where that's going to go. And sure, you're going to have a depressed computer. That yeah. makes completely sense. Yeah. Um, and the Hitchhiker's Guide is nothing more than Google in your phone or yeah. something. So it's sort of aged well in that way, both the humor and the, the sci-fi aspects of it. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, it does because it, it, A, it's very cynical on people and politics, of course. I mean, yeah. Zaphod being the president, 
Um, I, I forget who has a line. It might even it's the ship's computer who's too helpful. Yeah. But, uh, anyone who's capable of getting themselves made president should, on no account, be allowed to do the job. It's like, yeah. I mean, this is someone. This just came after Nixon and Ford. Like, of course they'd say that. Like, um, Ford Prefect hates humans, mm. right? One of the things that he always found hardest to understand was their habit of continually stating and repeating the very, very obvious. Yeah. <laughs> like, because Arthur has no grasp on it. He's the only one who doesn't understand what's going on, so he's having a nervous breakdown for 200 pages. Yeah. It's great. I, I, like, I, I think it lasts, um, to quote my friend who's now a professor at uh, Caltech in robotics, what's good about science fiction, good science fiction, is it should prove that morality works in a galaxy far, far away. Hmm. So if you believe that, the, like, that, that human goodness can somehow carry on that's why you would like Star Trek, because that's what it's about. Challenging that perceptive and seeing if it works on. This subverts everything about us. We're not good people. We're, we're a complete insignificant speck in the universe. How do we replace all of humanity? Get a robot that asks for tea. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that it's, it, it works because it doesn't take itself too seriously. Oh, definitely and not. I think that right. that's... That, that's why the story works, that's why the science fiction works, and I think that that's why the comedy works as well. Is that it's not, it, it recognizes that, that you, can, you can kind of poke fun at yourself. And when you do, this is the kind of humor that, that can come from it. I mean, like, even the idea of the improbability drive working out, like, like Ford is skeptical of everything. He's skeptical they found Magrathea, he's skeptical of this of uh, the infinity drive, right? But Arthur, who's just kind of, at this point, so shell-shocked, he doesn't know what's happening, he goes, mm -hmm. Ford, there's an infinite number of monkeys who think they've worked out Hamlet. And <laughs> <Yeah>. you're <laughs> just like, well, I guess everything is fine. Yep. We're, we're all here today. Um, but I... Okay, you like all the books. You've read all yep. of them, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, I've read them all the way through once. I think I might reread them up to the fourth one. Mm -hmm. um, I only read The Salmon of Doubt once. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if this book needed a sequel. I like them all. I like his sense of humor. But in and of itself, I think this is a nigh-on perfect comedy. And there aren't a lot of books like this. You know, this is, to me, a literary version of Animal House or Caddyshack. Like, something that's once in a generation but also somehow timeless. Um, I mean, and Mike, you're the, the Brit Lit guy, but it makes me think of Canterbury Tales in some yeah. ways. Just like, mm. so, like you have these crazy characters, and then you're going to find out what happens to them next, and the next episode, yeah. or the next adventure, or something like that. That's or a good the next really person's good. story or point of view. So it's infinite in that way, and you can keep telling the story. Um, yeah, and I think, I think that it kind of it forms itself in a way that lends itself to that, right? I think that, that you get the reluctant traveler. Right, and he's kind of on, and it's kind of funny because I do think that the actor that plays, we were talking about this beforehand, the actor that plays Arthur Dent is also the same uh, actor, his name's Martin Freeman, who plays, uh, who plays Bilbo in, the, in the, uh, the trilogy that was made into movies. So you get kind of the unexpected journey that this, that this character is on. Right. And, and as a result of that, you are exploring Douglas Adams' universe in the same moment that Arthur Dent is exploring the, the universe that Douglas Adams has written for him. Right. And as you're traveling from planet to planet, as not just this book, but as this series goes on, you continue to, you continue to encounter these entirely ridiculous situations right alongside Arthur Dent. So it, you're, it's built in such a way that you can follow along this story for as many planets as Arthur Dent is going to travel to. And I think that that's part of what makes it work. What's different then between the unexpected journey that Bilbo goes on and the unexpected journey that Arthur Dent goes on is that you get a little bit of the, the acclamation in, in Tolkien's story in, in The Hobbit. You get a little bit of that, that acclamation as to, as to kind of this world that he's going through and, and Bilbo grows a little bit. Arthur Dent kind of doesn't. He's just always that reluctant, uh, that reluctant traveler who's kind of down on his luck, and he never really seems to understand much more of the universe than he does on page one of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But as the stories go on and you encounter more and more situations and more and more planets with Arthur Dent, it just it creates this Tolkien-esque world that is, I think, 
both hysterically funny and also vastly multidimensional. And, yeah. and there are so many different facets of it um, that I, I can't recommend the rest of the series highly enough. Yeah. And if, if you enjoyed Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, as much as it, you can read it just as its own kind of standalone novel, if you like it, you can follow him along into the multiple other planets that he's going to visit as the series progresses through. I think the, the, the restaurant at the end of the universe is the second, and then it's life, the universe, and everything is the third. So long and thanks for all the fish is the fourth, and then the fifth is mostly we'll harvest. The uh, increasingly inaccurately named trilogy, yeah. as he puts it. <laughs> um, and I think to up that, in the movie, uh, Freeman wears the robe the entire time. Yeah. It's like they don't even give him a chance to change. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and the other thing that I think is funny about it, there's really no love lost between any of them. Like at the end, it's not like they're better friends. It's not. Right. It's, it's not Star Wars where Han Solo comes back. There's no fellowship. Like at the end, they're willing to sell out Arthur's brain so yeah. that they can figure out this big mystery. Mm -hmm. um, which is like it, it, it's all the better for it, but at the same time, it, it, it kind of it allows them to reset at the end of every scene, right? Just from a comedic point of view, right? Because. Arthur is going to always be out of step, even though Trillian is only six months ahead of him in space travel, she seems to be fine with everything that's going on, right? Yeah. Um, Marvin is never gonna like anything. Ford Prefect is kind of stuck up and worldly in a way that no one else can be. And Zaphod Beeblebrox is still the president of the galaxy because they don't know what to do with him. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that it's it's what makes the story work because it's not it's not a great plot that drives the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's these characters and it's the situations and it's the the universe that Douglas Adams has created in the way that he writes it that makes this story work as well as it does. It's not because of the specific plot that the characters are are interacting with. It's the it's it's this world that's been created. I think that that's why it works is because it doesn't really have a plot. It has these different pockets and you jump from the characters in a bar and then all of a sudden you're getting an excerpt, your first excerpt from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I think it's why the book works as well as it does and is as humorous as it is. But I also think that it's perhaps why the movie ends up falling short. Because I think that in order for the movie to work, it can't really rely as well on those different excerpts from the guide. And it can't, it, I think that the, the movie is more dependent upon a set trajectory for the plot, which doesn't really exist for The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, as you guys are talking, it makes me think a lot of, I'm ne I've never done improv, but I know you have, Nick, but it's a lot of like a yes and. So you have yeah. this incredible, weird premise and then someone's just gonna add to it and go with it. And yeah. you, just, you just go with it, you're along for the ride. Uh, and it works in a lot of places. I would love to know what his sort of editing process is. Yeah. Like as he's trying these little jokes and tangents, like this is good or this isn't, or yeah. you know, whether he's writing for the radio series or, or the novel, but because, because yeah, there's no, it's plotless in that way, yeah. but there's so many fun bits or sort of, um, sort of tangents that he goes on that's just, that works so well, so. Yeah, and it feels like whenever a sketch is ending, he just can shove a chunk of the Hitchhiker's Guide in there. Right, right, yeah. and it There's ties it together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and like, and Arthur is so perfect in that, because like, there's drama happening everywhere, uh, the missiles are coming, you already described the right. scene, and he hits the button that turns the improbability drive on and they turn into a whale and a pot of petunias. Completely redecorates the, the bridge. That's too. right. Yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and Zephyr goes, wow, did you just do that without thinking or calculating? Brilliant. And Arthur goes, like a proper Englishman, oh, it was nothing. And he goes, all right, so it's nothing. Yeah. And, and he goes, well, it was a little something. He goes, no, 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 you said it was nothing. Let's move on. Forget it. Like, and after, like, he finds out that his planet doesn't exist, they even talk to the guy whose role it was to bury the dinosaurs, right? Like all that stuff. He goes, Arthur realized something important was missing. Does this ship have any tea on it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and you know, and the robot makes up a sludge that is vaguely not like tea. Yeah. And, and analyzes your DNA and always comes up with a drink that's vaguely not like tea. It's 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 perfect. Yeah, and then it ends as casually as it begins, right? Where you're, you, it begins with your character who is, makes his way to the bar uh, in order to to have because his his friend is telling him that the world's about the end, so, about to end. So what difference does it make, anyways? And then it ends just as casually with our characters going to the restaurant at the end of the universe. Uh, and so it it 
it does it does kind of I, Nick I think that I that I'm kind of talking myself into agreement with you that it does kind of exist in its own kind of like little uh, bubble uh, that it, that it does kind of exist as its own work uh, just because of how ridiculously it ends up coming full circle there and it ends so casually. Uh, and then you, you can stop there or you can continue along with the rest of the yeah. series, which so aptly the next book is indeed entitled The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Well, because the last line is, you know, who's hungry? Mm -hmm. And he's the president, so he can get into the most fashionable. And it turns out to be more than this, but of course it could be, you know, it, it, it's described almost like, well, it's at the edge of something. So it's a village on the green or something, right? Yeah. Like, it's at the edge of the universe. Now it turns out to mean something very different. Right. But... You know, the idea that they could get into this fancy place, why not? We've got, mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, it's 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 the next episode. Yeah. Um, and, like, there's just all these little things nestled in the text that's so good. And I know, I know all of us have notes and all of us are looking up lines we like because how could you not? Um, and I feel like I, I, I prattle. So if there's anything you want to say, but my, my favorite is... I, I just have it in front of me. And then one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be for people to be nice to each other for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rixmansworth suddenly realized what it was that had been going wrong all this time. And she knew how the world could be made good and happy place. This time it was right. This time it would work and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Yeah. And it's just... It's, I don't know. I just... I love, because on the other hand, you know, nothing can work out in this world mm -hmm. because they just have to go to the next, but it's, that was something he wrote. He hit, you know, he, he saved that page and he just put it in the book. It doesn't yeah. matter. It's just perfect. Yeah. And it's so freaking it's funny. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, anyway. Um, have you, we all love this book, obviously, but have you guys known people to read it and not like it they get turned off by it or that it's not their I've known people thing? who like this one but hated the sequels really huh um and you know I mean I, I I like going back I like them all um but this seems like for those of you who like music especially indie music this feels like a band's first album where they've worked on it for 10 years to make huh. a perfect album and then their second album is always more disappointing because Okay, now you have a year to come up with something else. Right. Um, so this one feels very polished. And the other ones do, because he has a sense of the characters. But I think this is the best of the lot to me. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that I have had, where people really like the first one and then are disappointed, and then they don't read the rest of the series. Especially, I think the third one starts with Arthur alone in a cave for like 20 pages, and it... it it's funny, but it doesn't get going. Yeah, this think, one goes. I think that's the the start of the fourth, actually. Okay, I think yeah. that's the start of So Long and Thanks for All the Fish. But I think that, and I'm, as I'm kind of thinking about it, I wonder if somebody that wouldn't like the series or wouldn't like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I wonder if it kind of comes back to that notion of taking taking it a little bit too seriously, perhaps. and. I think if you if you approach the series with the same seriousness with which you approach Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I think that you'll you'll be able to render a lot of a lot of kind of the the humor and the enjoyment out of the text. Um, it's not something that, and I think that the the fact that I came to it, and it sounds like both of you guys came to it, not in a like scholarly manner. That's not really how you approached it. It's certainly not how I came to it. And I think that that if you were to kind of approach it for its scholarliness, um, for lack of a better word, I think that you might, it might end up falling short as you're trying to analyze the plot and, and analyze the worth of it. But I think that that those that do approach it with that that eye for that humor and to, to try and to try and appreciate it for the for the kind of the sketch comedy that it's worth, uh, I think I think that you're you're going to get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I will say, as someone, as Mike kind of tipped his hand, I, I, I've done comedy before. The kind of comedy I do is much more, uh, I mean, I podcast, but I do like Mystery Science Theater 3000 where we're kind of riffing, which is very improvised, and I've done some improv as well. Like, when people start doing comedy, it depends on how you get into it. This book is hurt by the kind of person who memorizes others' comedy routines and just parrots them. Yeah. Right. Because 
this move if you know this book only because people have quoted it at you mm -hmm. you miss why it's funny a lot of these quotes I'm, I'm intentionally trying to pick quotes that without context are funny but mm -hmm. like even just saying 42 without the explanation it's not funny the fact that they waited 10 million years to be disappointed is funny right yeah right like but you should read this if you want to know, learn how to write funny because the roundabout way Douglas Adams gets to things. For example, uh, in describing Zaphod, he describes him as you know shooting from the hip and dumb, and he's dating Trillian. One of the major difficulties Trillian experienced in her relationship with Zaphod was learning to distinguish between him pretending to be stupid just to get people off their guard, <laughs> pretending to be stupid because he couldn't be bothered to think and wanted someone else to do it for him, pretending to be outrageously stupid to hide the fact that he didn't actually understand what was going on, and, real, and really being genuinely stupid. He was renowned for being amazingly clever, and quite clearly so, but not all the time, which worried him, hence the act. He preferred people to be puzzled rather than contemptuous. Yeah. You could not write a better character than that. But you can't also just repeat it. It works in the context of this incredibly weird world where Trillian gets I mean, she 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 kind of falls for this guy to party, she's drinking, she's having fun, and then ends up in space. So she's making it work, and Arthur Dent, the only other person in the galaxy who's a human. And her two mice want to dissect his brain. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll be honest. I came, I came into this particular podcast kind of nervous because I, first of all, I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But I also, I, I think I recognize a little bit of what it is that you're saying, Nick, which is that you can't just rehash these these jokes and have it work. I think that it's 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 so dependent upon the story that's that's evolving around it and where it is and how it is that it comes up in the text and you you can't it, it, it's almost like trying to repeat the lines from your favorite comedy movie and trying to get it to to land in, outside of context from that comedy movie yeah. and I, I came into this podcast actually kind of nervous because I, I know that we, you can't really read the page and get just how funny this text is across. So right. I was nervous about how we were going to be able to talk about this text, and I, I think that I'm, I've been I've been happy and pleased with how it is that we've been able to talk right. about this text. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Somebody I, likes it. Yeah. Two episodes in, and we've already given up. Right. <laughs> but but I, I I really do think that I, I part of that neuroses about it was was exactly what it is that you're talking about, yeah. Nick, which is that it's so dependent upon the the story that's evolving around it that you can't just extract it from the page and 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 try and and try and retell it. Right. Uh, I think that it, it's you you need you you need kind of that that burn that goes along with getting to know Douglas Adams humor and then seeing these jokes within their context because when you do I think that there there in my opinion there isn't a funnier book out there I think it, it just it hits so well with that humor yeah I mean and uh, I will say I mean in, in that in that vein I had concerns too uh, in the movie podcast, and again, you guys can figure it out if you're interested in looking into me, but like, we don't do straight comedies. There's those straight comedies that we share from our childhood that all of us have seen, even problematic ones, like uh, Revenge of the Nerds, very problematic now, still funny at times, problematic. But if all we're doing is repeating jokes, you're not talking about yeah. the actual art form. That's why we're structuring our discussion the way it is. I, I ban those kinds of things there, because here, the point is not that we're talking about the jokes, we're talking about the structure, and in and of itself, we're having fun with something else. Right. This book is something you can discuss, but my question is to you guys who are English teachers, do you think you could teach this? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I think a lot of the subtext of this podcast is about the right book at the right time. Um, but teaching it, I don't know. I mean, it's enjoyable, but I can see some people not enjoying it, right? If you yeah. don't buy into the voice or you don't get carried along or you're not patient enough for the humor and the payoff, that might be hard to teach. Um, I'd definitely keep it as an optional book um, or have that yeah. for somebody to read. But as far as like sitting down and spending three weeks to teach it, I don't know. That's a great question. I don't, I don't think that it... I don't think that it's a coincidence that the three of us sitting around this table 
didn't ever encounter it really within the confines of a classroom yeah. being taught this text. I think that it's that it's kind of in in scholarly periphery, but it's not actually being taught. And I think that that I think that it would be almost like it would be almost like butchering it to try and to try and teach the almost like trying to explain the joke, right? Trying to yeah. explain why the joke is funny. I think that there would be a lot of that if you tried to teach it. Unless you were uh, uh, the only kind of context that I could see teaching it would be in the in the context of maybe like a creative writing class or something like that, where mm. where you're teaching maybe small portions of it in order to try and teach how to write funny or try to teach how to write a comedy science fiction or, or kind of like yeah. in, 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 in that teaching form in order to not replicate, but in order to try and kind of teach what it is that Douglas Adams is so seemingly effortlessly doing. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's one context that I could see it. But other than that, to try and, to try and, uh, to try and sit down and read through passages and, and teach it like we would the great Gatsby or to kill a mockingbird. I think it would be, it would be, butchering it and would be taking some of the majesty that makes it so wonderful away. You think that's true to comedy in general? That's not true to a tragedy or something more serious? I will say... Either you get the joke or you don't, or that's your type of humor or not, or... I will say to, to our context, our mutual context, it's the reason why we don't show more comedy movies in Amex. Like, Oh Brother Aren't Thou is, I think, the one that we show that's the funniest. But it is also shown in the context where it's a good movie, even if it's not funny, hmm. right? And there's stuff to talk about without it. This book has structure, and it's interesting because it has various plots that are woven together. But it's all for the sake of comedy, and I think that's the difference. Like, if I showed a scene that was funny and the kids don't laugh, I hope I've at least chosen the scene for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like... When we do uh, Looney Tunes and we show the Fuhrer's face to talk about World War II propaganda, it's a very funny cartoon. But even if the kids don't find it funny, it still serves a purpose. If someone doesn't find this funny, I don't know what purpose it could serve in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I mean, that, that would be my answer to it. Um, but, like, I mean, and there's, for example, we teach the short story Good Country People, which I think has some very funny moments. But even if a kid doesn't find it funny, there's still things they can get from that short story. True. You know? Um, but that would be my response. Yeah, yeah, I think I think I would agree with that. I think that the ultimate goal, if you will, of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is comedy, whereas the ultimate goal of Good Country People is not comedy. Right. And I think that that the purpose behind it, I think, it is makes it more of a text that that lends itself to being taught. I'm trying to think of other texts that we teach that they they have comedic moments there's there's comedic moments in in lots of different stories there's comedic moments in the great gatsby right and, yeah. and there's there's comedic moments in in lots of literature but to teach a work that is where the ultimate goal of the piece is comedy uh, i i don't know if i'd be able to do it i think that it, it would be it would certainly be challenging and i mm -hmm. i i don't know if there's another text that that we that i've taught that the the goal of it is comedy. I don't know if I don't know if I can Shakespeare, say that that's the case. Shakespeare comedies uh, or you, you know yeah I mean I guess I guess something <laughs> midsummer but, but even even right but even with that there's layers of language and plot and character that you can right. do more well that's all here but I got I wonder, one yeah. the Miller's Tale do you guys still teach the Miller's Tale I mean, I'm I mean I learned it in years I, well, yeah, I learned that, it in that's high school fun one. yeah uh, Mary Beth it's, Cox it's the dirty so one right yeah it's I mean it's funny. But no, I mean, but I think that's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, that's not a bad thing. I mean, again, Mike and I teach film. We've talked about introducing stand-up comedy. But like, if I were to pick a stand-up comedy piece, I mean, God help us. There's they're so hard to do because like you'd want to do something like Carlin or Pryor that have also satiric cultural insight. But the idea that I'd get away with that and still keep my job is next to zero, right? Yeah. Uh, of the seven dirty words you can't say on television, I still can't say any of them yeah. in the classroom. Um, but like, you know, like it's it's a shame because comedy is one of those things. I mean, not to get philosophical, but it's what makes us people. It's what makes us human. To be able to laugh clearly has an important evolutionary trait because it releases chemicals in our brain that make us feel better. It, it's so, and as Americans and English, we have and the English have such a connection to what makes humor mm -hmm. that like 
our comedies play in France. French comedies do not play here. Right? Like, so it is part of our culture. I just don't know how we can teach it. Teaching comedy seems so trite and so hard and so weird. I don't know what to do. No, I'm I, just thinking out loud. If you were to pair this, you'd have to pair it with like Waiting for Godot or something yeah. like totally absurdist and existential. Well, it's, it's funny you say that because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is yes. in, in Brit Lit probably the, the, one of the texts that's the most centered around kind of that absurdism that you get a lot of in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yep. And that text is really funny as well. So I don't know, maybe I, I might be starting to come around a little bit here on the, the ability to be able to teach it. If you think about the purpose of comedy being, or the, the purpose of something like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy being comedy, whereas the purpose of a tragedy being the catharsis, there's, at the end of the day, maybe there's not that much difference between, between being able to teach the text that's lending itself towards that ultimate goal, um, but I'd be afraid to do it because I'd be afraid of, of butchering the comedy aspects of it in a way that, I don't know, for some reason I'm not worried about butchering the tragedy aspects of a tragedy. And maybe that says something a little bit more about me as a teacher, but I, I, we, I find myself kind of shying away from the comedy and leaning more into that, into the, the tragedy, but when you break it down, isn't one just trying to get to comedy, whereas the other's trying to get to that catharsis? I will say, when I've been asked about this, you know, and this is not designed to sound political or anything, but um, when, when, we, when we're doing our comedy stuff, and we're doing our improv, we, you know, someone asked us why there's a lot more uh, liberal comedians than conservative comedians. And I said, I don't really have an answer, um, but I think you have to really care about humanity. You really have to care about mm -hmm. people. And I think that's kind of part of the whole liberal conservative divide. And I, to make fun of someone in a funny way, you have to first care about them. Yeah. And I think that's part of it, right? Like, in the end of the day, Douglas Adams is making fun of the notions of science mm -hmm. fiction. So maybe the way you do it, if you did it, mm -hmm. would be to have a sci-fi class. And you start with something heavy and very, like Arthur C. Clarke in 2001 yeah. as a book. And then you build to uh, Rendezvous with Rama or something mm -hmm. like that. And you do some films. You do Star Wars and you do some Star Trek. Yeah. And then that's the end of the class mm -hmm. to say, we make fun of this because this was the culture at the time. And humanity needs to be taken down a peg. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things, we're not the most important thing in the universe. There's not William Shatner there with his leg up on a rock saying, my God, we, <laughs> have, to, we have to do what's right for these people. No, we just brought a towel and won a hot cup of tea. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the answer. You know, it's, it's the end of a good dystopia class. Yeah. It's the ultimate dystopia because there's, there's no topia. Nothing's yeah. left. It's just two people who don't really like each other. It's all that's left for humanity. It's as though Adam and Eve didn't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> that's Crazy. it. That's, those are the only two people left. Yeah. Um, yeah, you could go in a whole different, like, you could be very contrarian about it, right? And you could teach it as a tragedy, right? What has happened to Arthur Dent? Like, he lost his life and everything that go, yeah. he goes through. And um, you could get sort of philosophical about it in a way. I don't know if it would work, but you could just yeah. sort of pose it that way. What if you, what if this was a tragedy? Yeah. Um, in the same way that, I don't know. I mean, he loses everything. <laughs> yeah. It's the opposite of Stranger in a Strange Land. Right, like he, he's he's the only one left of his people, not the one, the first one to come to Earth. He's the last one to leave Earth. Yeah, um, which is also a good. Or yeah, you get analytical about what, why does it make you laugh, or why does it not? Yeah. It'd be tough, and I don't know if you'd have to have the right audience, but. Um... Yeah, I, I mean, know. you know, eventually if you're running an elective, it's because the students like you. So maybe they'll go out on a limb for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you were saying that about a, about a science fiction class, yeah. and it certainly exists within the genre of science fiction, right? I mean, that's, sure. that's, oh, yeah, of course. That, I don't think that there's any arguing that. So maybe within the, the context of an elective class like that, it could be something that... Uh, where where you could explore kind of that that journey or the looking at the hero's journey as reluctant of a hero as Arthur Dent is, uh, you could you could kind of apply that trope and take a look at it within the genre of science fiction. And well, at the beginning, I said uh, my other podcast is doing Soil and Green. Like, it's funny because what's interesting about this is reading a lot of the stuff again, like Heinlein and and Clark. And he's referencing a lot of that in his work. But if you've never read Strange in a Strange Land, you still can enjoy this book. 
Yeah. I, I just, you know, get to puff on a pipe and be like, you, do, oh, you don't realize that he's referencing Heinlein here. <laughs> but, but still, like, there's something very charming about Arthur Dent and his robe and his cup of tea. And Zaphod wanting to go, hey, buddy, who wants a steak at the end of the universe, baby? Yeah. And Marvin sitting in the corner being like, oh, did I bother you? Like, yeah. it's... It's it's ultimately an incredibly charming voice, and and half of them I hear in Stephen Fry's voice, so we're yep. good. I'm totally fine with that. Um, gentlemen, um, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. Fun one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, the the last uh, podcast that we did on To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, uh, at the end of it, I was talking about the author page that I have. Uh, again, it's Michael. It's my full name, Michael, period, C, period, Carol. Uh, and you can go on there and take a look at some of the things that I'm doing, uh, trying to get my own writing published, uh, trying to uh, make my way through um, the Beowulf manuscript. And then lastly, as it pertains to all of you listeners out there, uh, some of the stuff that we're doing for required reading as well. Uh, the, the next text that we're going to be that we're going to be taking a look at, uh, and you can uh, you can always go on there and keep yourself up to date with what it is that we're covering here on the Required Reading Podcast. So again, that's Michael period C period Carol, uh, and you can go there to figure out what's new with our Required Reading Podcast. Um, then from RN, um, first, Tales from the Social Studies Department at the after the AP exam, all the students put together little stories that they wanted to tell that we didn't get to. And they're all over the place. True crime, uh, sports stuff, everything. Look it up. Um, I clean. I made sure there was no bad language. But other than that, I let the kids have free reign to do what they wanted. It's great. Uh, also, Maris Podcasting Experiment, uh, because it, I teach a podcasting course. These kids come up with wild and crazy stuff. And I keep my hands off. I, this is a way to encourage kids to pr produce art that the world can see. And I'm proud of the stuff they've come up with. And now, because we're at the end of August, damn it, Mike and I have something to share, which is as a part of American Experiment, each term, each group is going to present something. And for the first term, uh, in the vein of the podcast lore, they're going to be taking Cotton Mather's book on essentially witches and demons and making stories out of them that will appear in podcast form. So look up the American Experiment podcast, which is now... Four podcasts I make for Marist. <laughs> um, but each term will come up with a different project. Uh, but since we're entering the fall, I figured something a little spooky. Um, and these are, you know, two Cotton Mather, true accounts of witchcraft and demons in old New England. And the kids are going to pump them up and, you know, add sorts of non-diegetic sounds and such like that. Uh, but like we're doing this season, we will announce the next story at this point. For those of you who have already... Turn it off. I guess you're not going to hear it. Um, but you guys will have to help me because I always get the title wrong. Extremely loud and incredibly close. That's correct. Okay, good. I switch them. Yeah. Um, which is a book about, you might think it's a book about something. Turns out it's a book about nothing. Yeah. Um, thanks, guys. And thanks for all you do for uh, making this end up in people's ears. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, thank you. Bye, guys. <laughs>